right, but Judges chapter 13, and remember the last couple weeks we talked about Jephthah and the battles that he won, and after the time of Jephthah, Israel has some more peace. We've got a few judges that come along and basically kind of uh, keep things contained. They're able to fight off the enemy, so nobody's able to take over. And so it looks like we have about 25 years where things were relatively peaceful or they're not under the control of the enemy. But here we go again in verse 1. It says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines 40 years. And, you know, what a horrible testimony this is. But you know what? Don't get too pious because... There's a lot of Christians. You, you know, we can make an application for individuals here where you have Christians where it's like, again, they backslid on God. And again, they got in trouble. And they started having problems. And then again, after they got in trouble, they called out to God for mercy. They got their life back on track. They started being obedient again. They started being faithful to church and following God's commands. And God greatly blessed them again. And then again, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And I've known people like that. My whole life, I, I grew up watching that kind of thing. Uh, there's people that I know today that are still in the process. And let me just say this. Thank God he's merciful and he will restore you. But understand that when it comes to uh, backsliding, it does seem like every time in an individual, and we see this with Israel too in their history, when you backslide again, the trouble you get into is even worse. It's always worse. And here's the other thing too. When, when, in the case of a nation, in the case of a family, when they backslide, just understand too that sometimes not everybody makes it back. A lot of times what we have is you, when you, if you have a family who has this uh, tendency to backslide on God, you know, the, the consequences aren't too great when their children are young. But understand you're teaching your children how to be inconsistent. You know, you're, you're teaching them a pattern of unfaithfulness rather than faithfulness. And they're going to pick up on that. And as time goes on, the consequences are going to get worse. And pretty soon, they're going to become teenagers. They're going to become adults. And you're going to backslide again. And while you very well may come back, they might not. And so you need to always keep that in mind. The consequences are always greater. And let me tell you something. It doesn't change when your kids are out of the house, too. I've known past. I, I, I could think of one pastor right now that I knew who, uh, you know, had a good family. Uh, his daughters married preachers that were serving the Lord. And then after his kids were grown up, after his kids were married, he ended up cheating on his wife. He ended up backsliding and got busted, lost his ministry. And then him and his wife got divorced. And then guess what? Both of their daughters got divorced too. And it's just like, what is that? You know, because there's something about that stability in your family that matters even when you're an adult. And, you know, I'd like to think that even if my parents, you know, went crazy and got divorced, it would devastate me for sure. I'd like, you know, I'd like to think that I'd still stay married. You know, and I think, I think that I would, especially at this point in my life. But at the same time, there is, there's something empowering about having you know, family that have stayed the course on these things. And, and I'm thankful I have parents that so far, it's looking like they're going to go till death do, do them part. I've got grandparents on both sides that did it that way. And it is, it, it is, it's very strengthening. So understand when you, when you backslide, when you get away from God, it's never just about you. It always affects other people. And thank God you can come back, but others might not come back with you. And, and so understand too, Israel, they were always making these comebacks, but the thing is they were always losing a generation too. There was always many people that were suffering and it just, it was, it's never worth it. It's never worth it. But this time too, notice how they were in captivity for 40 years. Now this is the longest period of captivity and oppression that we've seen with Israel. Most of the times before they were relatively short. I think there, was, there might have been, if I, if I remember correctly, there might have been one time where it was about 20 years. But this time, 40 years. Usually, after they would get right, they would have a time of peace for about 40 years. This time, they are in the hands of the Philistines 
for 40 years. And so this is the probably the toughest time that they have faced to date. And you know what? They deserved or at least the toughest time since they came out of Egypt. And it says, and there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and bare not. Now, I want you to take a mental note of this right here. But this story right here uh, is one of the few stories in the Bible that are centered around the tribe of Dan, which is interesting because very little is said about the tribe of Dan in the Bible with the exception of some stories in the book of Judges. And I think the more significant ones are going to come into play later. But I find that interesting too because the tribe of Dan is not mentioned in the book of Revelation. And I think there's a reason for that and we'll probably get into that later in the book of Judges. So just keep this in mind because Dan did play a role um, you know, in Israel. Uh, there were some good things that happened there and Samson was one of those good things. So verse 3 says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold now, thou art barren and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son. Now therefore beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. And a Nazarite, not to be mistaken with a Nazarene. A lot of people, uh, because Jesus referred to as a Nazarene because he was from Nazareth, they believe that he was a Nazarite. But uh, no, Jesus was not a Nazarite. And that's what some people use as excuse for saying he had long hair. Jesus was not a Nazarite. He was just from Nazareth. And Jesus couldn't have been a Nazarite either because of the fact that, you know, Jesus drank from the fruit of the vine. So Nazarites weren't supposed to do that. But Nazarite, it means separated or consecrated. Now turn over to Numbers chapter 6. We're not going to go through all of Numbers chapter 6, but I do want to refer to a few things in here because uh, there's pretty much, we've got a, uh, pretty much a whole chapter, or, well, or at least you know, almost a whole chapter, devoted to this Nazarite vow that people could take, but we don't really see any stories in the Bible of people actually doing this with the exception of Samson, who is a special case and is one from his mother's womb. And then uh, many people believe that the Apostle Paul took a Nazarite vow in Acts chapter 18. And uh, we'll, we'll go to that in a second. But look what it says in number 6. In verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, when either man or woman shall separate themselves to vow a vow of a Nazarite to separate themselves unto the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes nor eat moist grapes or dried. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree from the kernels even to the husk. And all the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head until the days be fulfilled in the which he separateth himself unto the Lord. He shall be holy and shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister when they die because of the consecration of his God upon his head, all the days of his separation, he is holy unto the Lord. And if uh, any man die very suddenly by him, and he hath defiled the head of his consecration, then he shall shave his head in the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. And on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtles or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle, of the congregation that goes on about the offering. And we'll stop reading right there. But I want you to notice a few things and just some, kind of some significance of this. So this was uh, something special that people would do for the Lord back then to basically separate themselves, consecrate themselves, and they were considered holy to God. Now, you and I, this kind of thing is foreign to us because that we understand today that we have been separated 
We have been consecrated. We have been cleansed. We have been made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. And therefore, we don't have to do all these ceremonial things in order to uh, be able to be of service to God, to be able to have a special connection with God, a special uh, relationship with God. We have the Holy Spirit inside us. And I preached a message not too long ago about what the Holy Spirit brought in the New Testament. And so understand, you know, anything that the Nazarite vow did for the people, the Holy Spirit has kind of already done that for us. So I don't think there is any point and any reason for us to do that today. I have known some of some hippie type Christians who have pretended that they are Nazarites. And so they'll use that as an excuse to have long hippie hair. And I'm pretty sure these people smoke pot too. And, and I don't know what that has to do with being a Nazarite. I'm pretty sure it has something to do with the fact that they're just a hippie. And they're trying to justify their long hippie hair. And don't get me going on hippies. You want to talk about prejudice. And if, if, if you can be racist against hippies, I am a racist against hippies. Don't like them. Uh, got, got a lot of problems with them for a lot of reasons. Uh, but but uh, I'm convinced any Christian today that tries to use that excuse, they are just a hippie. And they're and trying to be a hippie and have Jesus too. And I think it's all a bunch of foolishness. But understand too, all these people today that claim to be following, having a, this Nazarite vow too, what do they do if they accidentally come at any dead thing? What do they do if they actually break the vow? They don't have a priest to go to. To offer up the turtle doves and the, uh, the pigeons and the sacrifices and things. They're not able to do these things. And so what people will do is they will say, well, the Apostle Paul... He did a Nazarite vow and turn over to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, because I do want to point out something. The, what the Apostle Paul did, first off, I do not think is justification for any Christian today to do a Nazarite vow. And I'm, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, repeating a lot of the stuff we talked about in Acts and why Paul was doing all this. But in verse 18... It says, and Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in Chantria, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they desired him to tarry longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means... Keep this feast that cometh to Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. So what people will tell you is because Paul had shorn his head, that means he had done a Nazarite vow. And so that's what they would do at the beginning of their vow is they would shave their head at the, at the very beginning. And then all the days of their separation. And, you know, there was, you could do it for whatever period of time you wanted. If you wanted to... Uh, do it for a week, consecrate yourself to God for a week, a month, a year, whatever. You could do that, but you always started out, started out with your head shorn. So here's the thing about what Paul's doing here. If you remember when we were going through the book of Acts, we do see that Paul himself was determined to go preach to the Jews, try to win the Jews, even though the Holy Spirit kept telling him not to was speaking to the different uh, through different people who were all warning Paul, telling him not to go. And I believe what Paul was doing when he had done this vow, I believe he was doing this too, just basically to appease the Jews and as a testimony to the Jews. You know, this was him becoming all things to all men that he might gain some. And guess what? It didn't work. Because if you remember, when he went to Jerusalem, what happened? They ended up accusing him of bringing a Gentile to the congregation. They ended up hauling him off and he, to, uh, by the Roman soldiers. And y'all saw that story where several chapters, he's just going from one trial to another. A period of years passes. I mean, it was a whole big thing where he finally had to go to Rome. So understand that, you know, I think Paul did it for a special reason. I don't think he needed to do that to be consecrated to God. But at the same time, too, even if he did do it for that reason... The temple was still there during that time. And they, you could say they were still during a time where that old covenant and the things of the old covenant 
They were still waxing old and ready to vanish away, but they had not completely vanished away yet. Today, they have vanished away. By 70 AD, for sure, they had completely vanished away when God allowed the Romans to come through and destroy that temple. So just understand, there is no reason, there is no scriptural support for anyone trying to do a Nazarite vow today. Anything you are hoping to accomplish through your Nazarite vow, the Holy Spirit has already accomplished in our lives because uh, He came inside of us when we were cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ at our salvation. So you don't have to do any of those things. And folks, that's a blessing. This is something we take for granted. But folks, we can be used of God today. We can, we can read God's word. We can understand his word. He can empower us. He can enable us. And he does enable us to preach the gospel. I mean, folks, some of y'all, you go soul winning and you don't even take a bath before you go and you still get people saved. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is what cleanses you. You didn't have to do any ceremony. Okay? Now, I recommend taking a shower because you, know, you don't want your stink to scare the people away. But understand, you don't, do, you don't have to do any ceremonial thing to be capable of giving the gospel to somebody. That's a, and that's a blessing. I don't want to re-preach that message I did the other day. But uh, I just bring all this up to just remind you what the things of the law failed in doing. We're going to see Samson was not able to keep this Nazarite vow his whole life. But what no one is able to keep through the law, we are able to keep through Jesus Christ. We are able to keep through the Holy Spirit. And so... Um, Samson is not an excuse for anyone in here to have long hair. Some people try to get, listen, if you want to be a hippie that bad, if you want to be a girly man that bad, all right, just go to the charismaniac church. It doesn't preach against anything. And, uh, you can do that there. Now I did hear one Baptist preacher one time. He just said this during a sermon and he did not give me anything. And he did not go to the scriptures to prove it. But he said that he can prove from the Bible that Samson did not have long hair. Now, I don't know. I don't know how he can do that, I, but I, I heard a preacher one time, a Baptist preacher who does preach a lot of crazy stuff, claim that he can prove Samson did not have long hair. And I, I was like, and I'm sitting there like, okay, I want to hear this, but he didn't, he didn't, he didn't take the time to do that. He just said it. I've never been able to find out uh, how he proves from the Bible Samson didn't have long hair. I can prove he didn't have long hair after Delilah cut it, <laughs> but before that. Uh, before that, I, he definitely had long hair. So, I don't, people say weird things uh, sometimes, and I, I, I don't get it. But anyway, um, so Samson was a special individual. Samson is an exception. And Samson, you could say, was kind of like John the Baptist. Because, remember, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. But you know what? That isn't just because uh, John the Baptist was filled, uh, filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb does not mean any of you all can claim, well, you know, I've been filled with the Holy Ghost from my mother's womb. Or my child has been filled with the Holy Ghost. Because every time you mention Jesus in church, you know, when I was pregnant, I could feel the baby leap inside me. Listen, uh, there, there is a disorder that's out there. I forgot what it's called, but where people like think, they're like religious characters and all these things. I forgot what that's called. I've been meaning to maybe like do a sermon about that because a, a lot of people are getting that, whatever that's called today. And let me just tell, let me tell you, if you have an angel come and tell you some of these things, I still probably wouldn't believe it because Satan can be transformed into an angel of light. But either way, people like Samson, people like John the Baptist, had an angel come and announce their birth and tell their parents these things ahead of time. So just because these things happen in the Bible doesn't mean you can claim them. And this is just kind of a side note too, but does anybody want to guess who this angel was that came and told Samson's parents about his birth? Anybody want to guess? What's that? What do you, what do you think? Just go ahead and guess. Don't be afraid. Gabriel, okay? Now, I can't prove it was Gabriel, but I do think it was Gabriel. I mean, it was Gabriel that announced the birth of John the Baptist. It was Gabriel that announced the birth of Jesus Christ. It was, we, see, we don't see Gabriel's name mentioned until Daniel. But at the same time, 
it just it makes a lot of sense. It would be Gabriel. He's kind of the messenger angel, or Michael. He's like the fighting angel. And uh, you know, if you ever do get a chance to see an angel face to face, I would want to see Gabriel over Michael because usually Michael is there with a sword ready to do battle. Gabriel's just there to give you a message. But uh, but at the same time too, his name is not mentioned, and I think for a good reason. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But yeah, his name is not mentioned, but it's my opinion that it was Gabriel. So verse six, then the woman came and told her husband saying, a man of God came unto me and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God. Very terrible. But I asked him not whence he was, neither told me uh, his name. But he said unto me, behold, thou shalt conceive and bear a son and now drink no wine nor strong drink, neither eat any unclean thing. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And if you remember, when we were going through uh, Numbers, um, the that Nazarite vow, the three main things is nothing from the vine, don't go near any dead thing, and do not cut your hair. Remember those three things. Those will come into play next week. But those were kind of the very notable things. And notice too, in number six, it mentioned how you weren't even allowed to defile yourself for your father, your mother, and near kin. And that's important too because the priests of God, they, the Levites, they were a special people. They were a sanctified people. And they also weren't allowed to go near any dead thing. And it, But there was even an exception for them if it was someone who was near of kin. So the, this Nazarite, their separation that they had when it came to going near dead things, it went even beyond what the law was for a Nazarite. So this was a very important thing. He said, again, we look at these things and we think, who cares? Okay, but again, we have the Holy Spirit. We take this stuff for granted. But these things really mattered. And again, I think these two were also just a, a testimony about the holiness of God. And so God wanted them to practice cleanliness and do all these cleansings and things. They were very important. So this uh, verse 8, it says... Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O my Lord, let the man of God which thou didst send come again unto us and teach us what we shall do unto the child that shall be born. And God hearkened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again unto the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah her husband was not with her. And the woman made haste and ran and showed her husband and said unto him, Behold, the man hath appeared unto me, that came unto me the other day. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said unto him, Art thou the man that spakest unto the woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now let thy words come to pass. How shall we order the child and how shall we do unto him? Now, the angel had already told his wife all these things, but it was like the guy wanted to hear it for himself too. And of course, if my wife had a visit by an angel, I'd want to see it too. But he's asking basically the same thing. And so Manoah and his wife, while lacking knowledge for probably several reasons of what's going on, they did, it is obvious they did have a desire to do right and serve the Lord. I do think these were, um, again, probably misguided in some ways, but decent people, kind of like Jephthah. Jephthah was obviously somebody who had a heart for the Lord, but he was just pretty misguided. And that was because, again... Uh, Israel was just so backslidden during that time. They, they were not, as a nation, following God's laws like they should. And, you know, just th- you know, think about this, too. Okay? Think about saved people today. Think about some of the people that we get saved out soul winning who go months and maybe years and do not go to church at all. Okay? Do we think that those people are going to be just really sanctified, holy living people, you know, if they, if they got, especially they got saved out of the world and then don't get into church. Listen, any of us in here, if we got out of church, if we just decided, you know what, we're, you know, if you decided as a family, we're going to take a break from church for a couple of years, I think you would be extremely different than you are now, even after just a couple of years. Even with you knowing better, things would change. And proof of that to me is just watch what happens to people when they just quit being independent fundamental Baptist and go to more, and then just decide to go to a liberal church. The changes are drastic. So understand, you know, they're still saved. 
people who get saved out when we're out soul winning, they're still saved. But if they're not in church, if they're not being motivated and provoked to love and good works, they're going to be some pretty sorry individuals. And I believe that Manoah and his wife probably were doing the best they could, but this was a very dark time in Israel's history. And so if we were to go back and look at them, we'd probably be like, why did God even want to use these people? But, you know, God saw their hearts, and I do. I think they wanted to serve the Lord best they could. So verse 13 says, And the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, Of all that I said unto the woman, let her beware. She may not eat of anything that cometh of the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, nor any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, I pray thee, let us detain thee until we have made ready a kid for thee. And the angel of the Lord said unto Manoah, Though thou detain me, I will not eat of thy bread. And if thou wilt offer a burnt offering, thou must offer it unto the Lord. For Manoah knew not that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto the angel of the Lord, What is thy name, that when thy sayings come to pass, we may do thee honor? And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is a secret? And so I can't say for sure why this angel didn't identify himself, but it's, it's my opinion that because of the fact that they were probably a little misguided, and we see too, they don't even completely understand what's going on here. Um, I think it's just, it would have been very likely because as soon as he finds out, you know, just when he thinks he's a man of God, he's like, we want to know your name so we can do you honor. If he just said, I'm an angel and I'm Gabriel, they probably would have started worshiping him. And he didn't want them doing that. And notice too, how he made sure they understood, hey, if you want to give an offering, offer it to the Lord. And you know what? That's what angels do. Angels, unlike Lucifer, who wanted to receive glory for himself, angels, they always make sure they give glory to God. Angels never accept worship. They always point right, you know, they always point back to God. And you know what? That's the same thing we ought to do too. We ought to always point people to the Lord. So, um, so it's, it, so in my opinion though, I do think this was probably Gabriel could have been another angel, but just my opinion, if I was to guess. And so that angel did not want them to bring an offering to them, but to the Lord, the angel did its job, making sure it gave its message and that God gets the glory. So verse 19, so Manoah took a kid with a meat offering and offered it upon a rock unto the Lord. And the angel did wondrously. And Manoah and his wife looked on for it came to pass when the flame went up toward heaven from off the altar that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar and Manoah and his wife looked on it and fell on their faces to the ground. And I think what we're seeing take place here is significant for a couple reasons. One, the angel ascending in a flame of fire would make it clear to Manoah and his wife that this wasn't just a man of God. This was an angel. They thought it was just a man of God. She said he's like an angel because of his countenance. But turned out it actually was an angel. So maybe he's doing this, revealing that he was an angel. But he also might have done this too, because I do believe it was a reminder. God does receive the sacrifices that are given to him in heaven. And so this angel literally goes up in the uh, flames and in the smoke of that sacrifice. And I think that's interesting because... To in Hebrews 13 and verse 15, it says, By him therefore, and this is for us as New Testament Christians, we don't offer burnt sacrifices, we don't offer animals and things like that anymore, but we do offer sacrifices. I preached a series years ago about New Testament sacrifices. And we do have sacrifices today. We just They're not like they were. But here's an example of one of them. It says, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Did you know that when you praise God, he receives that? And it, it's a sacrifice. It's that sacrifice of praise. The Bible says, offer it continually. We should always be praising the Lord. Now, I, isn't that better just giving the fruit of our lips than bringing an offering? bringing an actual physical sacrifice folks god made things so much easier for us in the new testament 
we, and that should not cause us to get lazy. That should cause us to rejoice even more. You know, sadly today too, you know, I mean, I find myself, you know, I, under, you know, the temptation of a lot of pastors face. Okay. And if I may just share some of my challenges as a pastor, but I, I, I try to watch it is as a pastor, you know, you are, you're trying to guide people. You are trying to influence the flock. You're trying to help people. But at the same time too, you know, I do believe there's lines that pastors shouldn't cross. And a lot of times in order to get people doing what they think they should do, they do kind of, they do tend to step out of bounds and kind of, uh, you know, strong arm people a little bit and almost take away their liberty and can go into a form of legalism, even if it's not trying to get people to heaven. Uh, you know, I do think we've got to be careful about like putting all these rules on people in ways where we're acting like they can't have a relationship with God and they're not right with God if they're not doing some of these things. And, and so I do, I, I think there's a line that you can cross. And so, you know, as a pastor, it's tempting for me not to get up here sometimes and start giving you guys scare talks about all the bad things that are going to happen to you and all the stuff God's going to do to you. If you're not giving your tithe, if you're not being regular to church, if you're not faithful in your soul winning, and that's not necessarily right because technically we do have liberty. But let me just say this. It's pretty sad that liberty does not motivate us to want to do more. You know, it's pretty sad that liberty causes most Christians to get lazy. And so, yeah, you know what? I don't really have anything to threaten y'all with. But at the same time, it's like, man, you know what? Why can't, you know, this, this sacrifice of praise, you should be bringing it regular. You should be thankful for this. You ought to appreciate it. But because in our lifetime, we've never had to do those sacrifices like that before, we take it for granted. And so we're not faithful in those sacrifices of praise. We're not faithful in the things that God does want us to do. We're not faithful in the giving. We're not faithful in the assembling. He goes on in Hebrews in verse 16 too and says, but to do good and to communicate, which is referring to giving, he says, forget not for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Folks, when you give, God receives that sacrifice. God is pleased with that sacrifice. And you know what? If you don't do those things, like I said, you know, we have liberty in Christ. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think it's appropriate the way a lot of pastors go full Malachi, three, uh, I think it's two or three, on people. It's like, well, I, I get the principle of what you're teaching there, but again, we are under the new covenant and, you know, there is liberty that we have. But again, for people, if, if we understand what was expected before salvation and what we all received when we got saved, it shouldn't make us want to do less. It shouldn't make us want to do the bare minimum. But I, I'm telling you, I believe God wanted us to keep this Old Testament in our Bible for a reason. I, just, I don't think we talk about it enough. I don't think we talk about the law enough. And because of that... A lot of Christians are just taking for granted what they have in Christ and are just getting really lazy with stuff. And it's pretty sad. But the, God receives sacrifices. And that angel, it went up in that smoke of that sacrifice. You know why? Because that sacrifice was to the Lord and God was receiving it. And I like to think that God is, receive, you know, that God is receiving something from me. And so understand, when you are giving the fruit of your lips and you're praising God in sincerity... In truth, when we are singing in church, when we're singing praises to God, you shouldn't just be going through the motions of that. You know what you ought to be doing? You ought to be singing praises to God. You ought to be singing His praises as if He was here in the room. Because understand, if you do, if, if during our services, if you're praising God with your lips, He's receiving that. Now, what's He getting from you? Is He getting half effort? Is He getting, is he getting you know, hypocrisy? You're praising him, but in, in, in your heart, you're upset with him about something. You know, we ought to think about the fact, no, God is actually receiving these things that we are giving, these sacrifices, and we ought to want to please him. And so uh, this, this story here, this is kind of just a reminder of that. We could, uh, it's been long enough since I preached that New Testament sacrifice. 
series. I almost probably ought to preach some that again one of these days. But verse 21 says, But in the angel of the Lord did no more appear to Manoah and to his wife, then Manoah knew that he was an angel of the Lord. And Manoah said unto his wife, We shall surely die, because we have seen God. But his wife said unto him, If the Lord were pleased to kill us, he would not have received a burnt offering and a meat offering at our hands. Neither would he have showed us all these things, nor would, as at this time, have told us such things as these. So they were confused at first about what took place. But as they thought about it, it became clear they weren't going to die because God had a special purpose for them. And it says in verse 24, And the woman bare a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtael. So understand, we're going to see when Samson would do these great things, he was receiving a power from the Holy Spirit. He was receiving something special from the Holy Spirit. And what he specifically received was strength. Okay? Now, what he did not receive from the Holy Spirit was that separation, that consecration, that sanctification that you and I received from the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, I kind of wish the Holy Spirit would give me strength like Samson sometimes. That'd be pretty cool. I've not needed it. I've not needed to kill a thousand people at one time. Uh, I guess I really hope I don't need that. But at the same time, too, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit, though, has given me things in reality that are better. Uh, that he, I've, got, I've received the spiritual things. And so um, the Holy Spirit would often give people, would come on people in different ways. And it's not to be mistaken with what we have received from the Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost. So verse 24 says, And the woman bare a son. Uh, I already read that part. Um, and so, um, that, that, uh, so we got through all of uh, Judges 13. Now something we're going to see with Samson's great power it is it's something that came from God and God did it because God had a special plan he wanted to fulfill with Samson. And God did end up accomplishing that plan. Now, what was God's special plan for Samson? It was to for him to defeat the Philistines. And God gave him the, the, his spirit to help him do that. Now, you know what? God has a special plan for all, for all of us. And you know what God has done? God has given us the Holy Spirit so we can fulfill that plan. And what is that plan? Well, God wants us to be a holy people. God wants us to be a sanctified people. God wants us to be a people, too, that are reaching the lost. And so the Holy Spirit gives us those things. And, you know, thank God for that. And uh, so there's, a, there's a, a lot of parallels we could look at there. But what I want to do now, too, I do want to show you something very important. This is just... Uh, Kind of a side lesson. I was thinking about this too. One of the first sermons I, that I remember, full-length sermons that I, pre, I remember preaching way back at Lighthouse, it was on this subject from Leviticus 10. I want you to turn over there because obviously we all know the story of Samson. God had a very special purpose for Samson. And you know what? Samson fulfilled that purpose, didn't he? But Samson ended up dying. As a result, you all know the story. We know how the story is going to end. But Samson, sadly, ended up at the end of his life. He did end up fulfilling his purpose and he did end up glorifying God. But sadly, Samson himself was shamed. Samson died with his eyes gone. Samson died while being mocked by the Philistines. But Samson still was able to defeat those Philistines. And I'm looking forward to getting to that story. But... Something that we all need to get a hold of. This is just an important fact to remember about yourself and remember about everyone else. But did you know something that all of us will do with our lives? Every one of you here, I can guarantee you, something you will do with your life is you will glorify God with your life. Did you know that? Everybody. Did you know that even lost people are going to glorify God with their life? Even the worst reprobate you can think of, they are going to glorify God with their life. What do we mean by that? Well, in Leviticus 10.1, it says, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, 
which he commanded them not. They did not do the sacrifice in the manner that God had outlined for them. They did their own thing. They did it in a way God said not to do it. Now, you and I, again, we think, well, what's the big deal? But again, these were these things were important. These laws that God gave were important. And there went out a fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Notice what God when God said there, I will be glorified. God said, Listen, I'm going to be glorified among these people. And you know what? Nadab and Abihu. They dishonored God when they did not do things the way God said to do. So you know what? God made sure he was going to get his honor. And you know what he did? He ended up killing them. He ended up destroying them in a miraculous way, ultimately to make sure God was glorified. Because it makes God look bad when people are doing things against the way God said to do. And so understand, we're either going to, all going to either glorify God through our obedience and God's going to use us to fulfill his will or we're going to glorify god through our disobedience after we are punished and we are made an example of by god i would rather glorify god through my obedience that's what i would rather do we're all going to do it one way or another you know and so uh romans 9 21 says have not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor what if god willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. God, God is going to be glorified through the vessels of mercy, through those who believe on him. And you know how he's going to be glorified in us? He's going to be glorified one when he one of these days when he returns when our vile bodies are changed you know God's going to glorify he's going to glorify our bodies and we're going to be like him God's going to be glorified in that but you know what God's also going to be glorified on the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction Do you know the Jews are going to glorify God one of these days but they're not going to be glorified in a good way for them they're going to be God's going to be glorified when they are destroyed. You know why? Because God is going to use them as an example of his justice and of his judgment. And God will be glorified in that. Now, I'll tell you right now, the Jews today, especially over in Israel, they are not glorifying God right now. They are dishonoring God. But in the end, God will be glorified when when they are destroyed. And so, um, and, and man, I, I don't want to get... I don't, I don't want to preach Sunday's message. I caught something I hadn't caught before in, in Revelation chapter 7 that I'm looking forward to talking about Sunday. I'm pretty excited about uh, my message for Sunday, but something I never noticed before that's pretty cool, but um, this, I'm using this passage tonight too. But in Revelation 7, 9, after the rapture, it says, And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen and blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said, said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Did you know we are all going to glorify God when we are raptured, when we are caught up and we are with the Lord, when we are changed, when we have that glorified body? We all will glorify God on that day. God will be glorified greatly on that day. But did you know that God's even going to be glorified? In judgment, through the judgment of the great whore. We see in Revelation 19, verse 1, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people saying in heaven, saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, 
for true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. So God is glorified in judgment. Now, the great whore, are they glorifying God right now? No. But in the end, God will be glorified by them but it's not going to be good for them. It's going to be bad. It's through judgment. You know why? Because it makes a leader look bad when wickedness is done and there's no retaliation. For example, you know, our president right now looks decrepit and weak and pathetic, not just because he's pathetic, weak and decrepit, but because of the fact too that we have stuff happening to our nation all the time and he does absolutely nothing about it. I mean, even just the invasion on our border that's going on with just, I mean, thousands and thousands of people just coming into our country illegally, it makes him look weak, pathetic, and decrepit. All the junk that's going on with other countries, I mean, he is just constantly looking weak. Even, even that balloon that they let fly over the entire United States, and after it gets done doing its surveillance on us, then he shoots it down, you know, after it's crossed. It made him look weak and pathetic. And understand, when people do bad things to our nation and our leader does nothing about it, it makes them look bad. And so understand, there is a lot of wickedness that's going on in this world. And you know what? People are not, God is not glorified when, while wickedness is going on, but when judgment is executed. And when it's executed in the right time. And God knows when that time is. I want it to be yesterday. It's going to be done in God's time. Just understand, he will be glorified. And we will praise him on that day. I believe, too, God's going to be glorified through judgment at the, at the, at the, after the great white throne of judgment. And so, um, whenever, the, whenever people are being cast into hell, you say, how's that? You know what? That is God's just, that is righteous judgment being done. That is God's justice being played out. And so think about all the atheists that are out there today who just blaspheme God. We're getting ready to celebrate uh, National Atheist Day on April 1st, April Fool's Day. And we and there's these people, they blaspheme like crazy. They try, really the atheist day that they have, uh, that they probably would claim, as I think it's April 22nd, which is Earth Day, which is where they worship their mother Earth God and all that kind of stuff. But just understand, all these people that are doing, that are just wicked, atheistic, anti-God filth. Understand, those people who hate God, they will glorify Him one of these days. One of these days, their knee will bow. Their tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, the story of Samson is just another example that we can learn from that in the end, God will always be glorified. And so everybody in here, just mark it down. You will glorify God with your life. The question is, will it be in a good way for you or in a bad way? Because one way or another, you can go ahead and get mad at God if you want to, but just understand, you're still going to glorify Him. It might be through judgment. God might glorify you if you grow up and, you're, and you decide, you know what, I'm walking away from it all. I'm going to go and I'm just going to live like the devil and I'm just going to forget all the things that I've been taught. I'm not going to pay attention to the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me. You know what? I don't know for sure what God's going to do. But you know what? You might end up glorifying God when He takes you out early. And I've seen that happen with people. I've seen it even recently with somebody that I knew that I believe was saved. That He believed he was saved, knew he was saved, but would just not get his act together. And he even believed and was even saying that God was going to kill him because he knew the wickedness that he was doing. And then he died in just this freak accident that wasn't, didn't even look like something that was that bad that you wouldn't think would even kill somebody, but it, it killed him. And you know, you know what everyone thought? You know what? I mean, his, his own family thought God killed him. I mean, a, a, there was no doubt. Everyone knew, and it was one of those things where everybody, you know, people were sad because they loved him. But at the end of the day, just like when God killed Nadab and Abihu, God told, the Bible says Aaron held his peace. You know what? Everyone, all the saved people in his family, all his saved friends, you know what they did after he died? Everybody just kind of held their peace. 
because it was like everybody loved him and was sad that he died. I was sad that he died. But let me tell you, I, I didn't think for one second, Lord, what's wrong with you? You know what I saw? I saw him glorify God through his death. And you know what? That's what Samson did. And so I would rather end my life on a triumphal note. I don't want to end my, I don't want to end my life in shame like Samson did. And so we often, we're often going to see the name of God blasphemed. We're going to see moments where God is made to look bad or blasphemed. And while those moments come, in the end, God will always be glorified. Often there have been preachers who have made God look bad through the, the things that they've done, through the wickedness that they've been involved in, trash that they've preached. But you know what? God always ends up taking care of those people. In the end, God always looks good. Oh, I don't know, this one person, nothing ever really happened to them. Well, you know, he'll be glorified when they get cast in the lake of fire. I personally think the preachers that, don't, that you know, do terrible sins, that don't get creamed on this earth, I'm just convinced those people weren't saved. The ones that are saved... They usually get run through the ringer big time because God deals with his children. And so if some guy's a preacher and he's caught up in adultery and all these things and God doesn't do anything to him, I think it's just because he wasn't wanting. I think he was just one of those false prophets and he will glorify God on judgment day. So there is no question about whether or not God will be glorified in my life. The question is, will it be good or bad for me? All you kids in here, can you mark that down? Just make a mental note of that. I will glorify God with my life. I will glorify God with my life. But is it going to be in a good way for me or a bad way for me? That's up to you. You know what? You can obey God and end, end great and glorify Him that way. Or you can disobey God and glorify God like Samson and shame and disgrace. And you don't want that to happen to you. So with that, let's pray to your Lord. I pray this message was a help to everyone. I pray, Lord, you'll help us to always keep that in our minds and our hearts. Lord, we are going to glorify you. And Lord, I pray that for the people here that it will be in a good way and that you will do great things, that you will be glorified uh, through the great things that you do in their life. And we just pray uh, you'll use that to motivate all of us. In your name we pray. Amen.